I'm speaking to you this evening. If you've been with us before, you'll know that we're talking about a new movement. And it's not a movement in an organization, but it's a movement in the sense of a movement of God's Spirit. And this is what we believe that revival now should be or could be, what we need God to do. And revivals always meet the needs uh, that are in any community, society, and church. We're going to look tonight at we need a new unity movement. And um, but I want us to pray before we do that. And I felt a real urge early on during our time of worship for us to pray the family prayer together. Some know it as the Lord's Prayer. It's really the disciples' prayer. But I felt a real urge that we should do that tonight, even for some people in our gathering, to do as well. So let's pray together. Our Father, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I believe that was significant for a few people in the gallery. Um, and you know why that is. I want you to turn to a number of scriptures, okay? We're going to look at several before um, I launch into this tonight. First, Psalm 133. Then we're going to go to John 17, if you want to look some of these up um, before we get there, and then Ephesians 2. So Psalm 133, then John 17, and then Ephesians 2. So don't worry if you don't get them on time, but um, I want you to see that what I'm saying tonight is based on the Word of God. This will be well known to many of you. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Wonderful words. And then John chapter 17, and as we said earlier, we call the family prayer the Lord's Prayer, but it's not really the Lord's Prayer because the Lord couldn't pray of himself, forgive us our trespasses, he didn't sin. It's more the disciples' prayer. But the prayer that we do have, uh, the most of his prayer language is here in John 17, which is known as this high priestly prayer. We're going to read from verse all of it's worthy of our study. But verse 20, just down to verse 23. Jesus says, I do not pray for these alone. And when he said these, he's talking about the 12 apostles of the Lamb. I do not pray for the apostles alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Amen. And then over to Ephesians chapter 2. 
and we're going to read verse 14 through 18, Ephesians 2, 14 to 18. Paul says, For he that is Christ himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For, I love this verse, for through him, we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Amen. Now, if Psalm 133 that we read at the beginning is true, unity is a key to blessing and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. If John 17 is true, Jesus' prayer and desire is for open unity so that the world may know that God sent him here. And in fact, John the Apostle who wrote the Gospel of John in his first epistle says something similar in chapter 4 and verse 12. He says, No one has seen God at any time, and if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. If I can paraphrase that, he's basically saying God's invisible, but he's not whenever Christians love each other. The world see Christ embodied in us. Remember that this is the most detailed prayer that we have of Jesus, and that's what he's praying for, that we would be one. If Ephesians 2 is true, then now there is no separation between those who are in Christ. We're not striving for that. That's a fact. And yet Christians are experts at thinking of ways to divide. Would you agree with me? Some make a living out of it. And their particular ministry is telling us why we should stay away from this crowd, that crowd, the other crowd, because they don't believe what we believe. They're different. In fact, in 2010, uh, Gordon Conwell's seminary, theological seminary, did a research to discover how many Protestant denominations there were. Would anybody hazard a guess? Now, if you know the answer, don't give it away. But would anybody hazard a guess as to how many Protestant denominations they found? 60? No. 50,000. He said 38,000. You said 50,000. Well, in between that, 41,000. 41,000. That's staggering. Um, but, you know, they all know they're right. Because that's why they exist. Because they've broken away from some other group because they believed something they didn't believe. And, and you need to believe this if you're going to be right. So that's why they all exist. It was in a Zoom prayer meeting in lockdown where I had an impression of the figure of the crucified Christ who was wounded, marred, and broken for us. But I was thinking to myself that the church 
he calls his bride has continued to wound, mar, and broken, break his, his body in unity. Think about that for a moment. Let me ask you a question. Why is unity so elusive in Christianity? I think the most obvious answer to that question is Satan does all in his power to keep it from happening because Satan knows what it will do to his kingdom and what it will do for God's kingdom if there is unity in the body of Christ. And so his um, MO has always been divide and conquer. It's always been the enemy's strategy. And Jesus even taught us in Matthew chapter 12 that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And so Satan knows what it will do to his kingdom and for Christ's kingdom if we're united together. And of course, he utilizes the enemy within all of us, mainly pride, sinful pride, to to make that instrumental in real terms. But we need to be awake to who it is who wants to keep us apart and in whose interest it is to keep us apart. Okay, so the first answer the question, why is unity so elusive in Christianity, is Satan does all he can to, to make sure it doesn't happen. But I think next to that answer, the most common obstacle is fear of false unity keeps us apart. Fear of false unity. What I've been talking about is ecumenism. And ecumenism really has become a dirty word in many circles of Christianity, but it wasn't always so. If you look into church history, you will see in the early church there were ecumenical councils where they came together to discuss things, doctrines and so on, practices that affect the whole of the church. But recently that word has fallen into disrepute. And ultimately the fear of false unity or false ecumenism is this idea that some way we're going to get contaminated. It's the fear of contamination by other people that don't believe everything that you believe. And somehow you will be morally or spiritually compromised by associating or fellowshipping with some who call themselves Christians but are very different from you. Now, hear what I'm saying tonight. We must be beware of deception. We must beware of idolatry. But we also must move with a kingdom mindset that is not afraid of the dark, but actually a kingdom mindset is realizing that Jesus said we are salt and we are light, and we bring salt and light wherever we go. We're not meant to be the boys running away. We're meant to be the folk running into the, the, the fire of the battle, knowing that we have Christ with us. Many years ago, I learned from a, an, an older mentor that stop wrestling with the darkness and just switch on the light. It's a big difference, and it makes a difference. Now, people draw the line of unity in different places many doctrines as their line. And there's some very exclusive Protestant and Catholic groups who will only mix with their own kind. Okay, and we we can think of some of those. In fact, there are sects who will not even eat with people outside their group. Do you know that? Here in Northern Ireland today. In fact, used to be, I don't know whether it's the case today, but in Kilkeel and along in certain shipping, uh, fishing parts of the country. Um, You know when you're out on a fishing boat for maybe five days with a group of men, you have to eat on the same boat. But because some of those men were of an exclusive kind of sect, 
they actually weren't allowed to eat, break bread with someone else that wasn't among their group because that was seen as fellowship. And what they actually did, there was one table on that boat and they would put a wooden board up between them and the other men in the boat. Through the table, there was a wooden partition to divide them. They believed they were doing what God was calling them to do. So that's an exclusiveness. And then at the opposite end of the spectrum, there are those who adopted what we call syncretism. I'm sorry for these big words, but they mean stuff. And syncretism means they believe in an amalgamation of all different religions and different belief systems. And basically, their motto is all, all roads lead to God. So it doesn't really matter your way. We're all worshiping the same God anyway. And it completely obliterates the importance of the truth of the gospel and the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. So how do we navigate this minefield? I mean, where do you draw the line? Is there a line? And if so, where, where is it drawn? Now, I hope that we have established, even from a very casual, cursory reading of Scripture at the beginning of my message tonight, that God desires unity in the body of Christ. I mean, that's obvious. But we need to determine tonight what biblically is true unity and what is false unity. Okay, so will you come with me? Let's look, first of all, at false unity. Now, Biblical objection to false ecumenism is a no-brainer to me. The idea that all roads lead to God is, is the ancient fallacy. And anyone preaching another way to God other than Jesus, who himself said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Or anyone preaching another Jesus, Paul said, is anathema. That means a curse. That means you're cut off from God. You're preaching another message and another Savior. So hear me clearly in what I'm saying tonight. Doctrinal truth is important. And it is not to be simply laid aside for the convenience of false unity. Proverbs 23, 23 is a good verse to learn. Buy the truth and sell it not. Get the truth and don't give it up for anything. But that being said, and this is an important distinction that we need to make tonight, that is a different issue than how we relate to individuals, to groups of people, and even movements that have come to a knowledge of the truth within certain structures that we may not necessarily agree with in places. Do you hear what I'm saying? There is a difference. Let me tease this out more with you. Let me ask it another way. When there are individuals, groups of people, and even movements in certain religious structures that we may not wholly agree with, do we encourage them in their faith in Christ? Or do we discourage them? What do you think the Christian thing to do is? Do we fellowship with them? Or do we ostracize ourselves from them? Do we erect our literal or metaphorical boards in our tables? Do we disown and shame them? Or do we embrace and love them? 
And if we embrace them, do we think by embracing them that we are embracing whole institutions and everything that they believe? Herein lies the problem. And very often the problem could be defined as this, a guilt by association mentality. And that pervades Christendom in in Ireland, and particularly in Northern Ireland, and in evangelicalism. Conservative evangelicalism especially. Guilt by association. In other words, if you associate with somebody who believes something else, it's as if you believe that. And that is utter nonsense. But hear, hear what I'm saying here. To be consistent with that concept of guilt by association, you have to so isolate yourself that you become detached from reality and ultimately you become ineffective. That is the only rational, inedible conclusion that you come to. You end up hiding away from the rest of the world, which many religious sects have done. Now, a question I want to ask you is, doctrinally, what does a person need to know in order to be saved, to be right with God? What do you think they need to know? Well, we often talk about childlike faith, don't we? And if I was to ask the show of hands here in the gathering who was converted as a child, there'd probably be quite a number of people who came to faith as children. What did you really understand at that time? But even as adults, I mean, at the moment of new birth, what do the people really understand, especially if they haven't had a church background? I mean, what did the blind man know in the Gospels, in in John's Gospel, chapter 9? Do you remember the religious Pharisees and scribes were saying again to the man who was blind, give God the glory. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And he answered and said, well, he's a sinner or not. I do not know one thing I know that once I was blind, but now I see. If anybody said to you, I don't know if Jesus was a sinner or not, you'd probably be appalled. But this man says, I don't know about that, whether he's a sinner or whether he's not. All I know is I was blind one minute and now I can see. Now I know this man had to go on a bit of a journey. I'm with you there. But what I'm trying to say is that for him to have a transforming encounter with Jesus... He didn't have to have an ingrained systematic theology in his brain. He just knew that Jesus changed his life in a moment. What about the thief on the cross? Dying there. He didn't know who Jesus was one minute and then he's introduced to him the next. In fact, he ridicules him for a while. If we put the gospel uh, together, I mean the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see that he was with the other guy, the other thief, ridiculing Jesus. And then, then he had a change of heart. And then he see, says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He understood he was a king. What else did that? Did he know he was the incarnate son of God? Did he know about, did he believe the virgin birth? Can he get into heaven if he doesn't know about the virgin birth? Does he know about the Trinity? Did anybody in the early church articulate that? They didn't know that word for a start. What did he know? What did he need to know? Jesus said today, you'll be with me in paradise. And he didn't have to tick down some kind of list of requirements on basis of belief before Jesus said you're in today. Now what I'm asking you is, 
what hurls do we put in the way of others? What do people honestly need to know? Do they have to believe absolutely everything that you believe or your church believes to have an encounter with Jesus? I'm not saying we ditch truth or doctrine at all. If you know anything about me, you'll know how important I feel the Word of God is and remaining biblical. But this actually is biblical, what I'm talking about here. And this is something that really helped me. And this is probably how I needed to process this and couldn't bring this in the first installment of our series. I needed to do a bit more work with the Lord over this. But this has really helped me. I don't agree with some things that are taught in many churches that call themselves Christian, both Protestant and Catholic. But if I don't recognize those structures and institutions as defining the church, you hear me, I don't believe denominations or Christian colors on the spectrum regarding sects and practices define the church. Are you with me? If I don't believe that defines the church, then when, why would I allow that to divide me from those within those structures who are my brothers and sisters? Let me explain it to you like this. You remember during the Troubles? Do you remember Irish Republicans, they didn't recognize British courts? And, um, you know, if a, lo- if, a, if a sentence was passed down, they probably would retort, maybe not audibly, but certainly this was their belief system. I don't recognize the decrees, the laws, and the judgment of this, course, this court. Right? because they didn't recognize the crown and British justice. Well, in a similar way, I don't recognize the church as the structures, as the denominations, as the labels, as the divisions and the separations. So if I don't recognize that, am I not a hypocrite if I use that to divide me from brothers and sisters who genuinely know Jesus that are in those groups? Are you with me? I do not recognize institutionalism of the church. So why should I permit it to divide? Another question. How do we ever hope to influence people for God if we stand afar off from them? Or if I could use an analogy, if we walk on the other side of the street and shout towards them, you're going the wrong direction, You need to be over here with me. You need to be like me. Because that's the way they hear us. And Catholics hear us saying, you need to be a Protestant. And that's what they hear. That may not be what we're saying, but that's what they often hear. What was the disposition of the Good Samaritan? We all know that parable well, don't we? And we use it for all sorts of charitable illustrations and applications. But it was the priest and the Levite, the religious clergy who walked on the other side, and it was the Samaritan who went over and helped the guy that was beat up the wayside. Now, the Jews had no dealings with Samaritan. So if we were telling that story, you know, if you're a Chelsea supporter, um, Jesus would have made the good Samaritan a Tottenham supporter, okay? Or an Arsenal supporter. But if you were a Protestant, Jesus was speaking to you. He he would have made the good Samaritan and a Catholic. Do you understand? 
He was trying to illustrate to them, these people that you despise and think don't have the truth, actually this guy is doing something that you're not prepared to do. He's embodying the truth more than you who have the truth or think you have the truth. Do you understand? This was shocking. This was scandalous. This is why the, the religious leaders were appalled at what he was saying. But I'm asking the question, what are we more like? We stand on the opposite side and we shout and say, you need to come over where we are when actually what Jesus taught us is, no, you need to go over where they are. Mitch said, walk across the room. You know, there are people, one in particular I'm thinking of many years ago now, who walked across the road on a Christmas morning to wish the parish priest a happy Christmas, and he was driven out of Northern Ireland. Presbyterian minister. I don't know what he believed. But I don't care what he believed. I don't care what he believed. To do that and to be driven out of a country for it is abominable. What did Christ teach us? Well, in Mark chapter 9, John, the beloved John, the man of love, said, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. <laughs> and Jesus said, Do not forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me, for he who is not against me is on our side. For whoever gives a cup of water in my name, because you belong to Christ, surely I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. That was John, the son of the thunder, not, not the beloved John. But you get the gist of what Jesus is saying. Don't forbid them. Now, they weren't in the apostles' cried. So who were they? They weren't even known to the apostles. They must be wrong. They're not in the original group. Jesus says, don't forbid them. If they're not against me, they're for me. That's what Jesus taught. So listen to what I'm saying. What is false, false unity? Institutionalism is not true unity. And neither is, and I don't want to offend anybody tonight unnecessarily, but I have to say this. Denominationalism is not true unity. Now, I'm not against your denomination or any denomination. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the concept of denominationalism and institutionalism is actually a fractured unity. Because by you coming together with like-minded people, it infers that you're separating from other people. And whilst these serve to unite certain people, it divides the body. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 13? I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So some people, they followed Paul. He's the, the forensic mind, the real theologian. We like him. Other people followed Apollos, who was the great teacher. He was so able in argumentation and in the scriptures. Other people followed Cephas. That's Peter, the man's man, you know, the rock. The guy that, 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 that really could speak our language. And then there was the exclusive crowd who said, 
oh, we don't follow men, we follow Christ. I used to think they were the right ones. They weren't the right ones. They probably were the worst ones because they were saying we're better than the rest of you. We follow Jesus alone. But they used that to separate themselves from the rest of them. Paul is saying, I, I, I say in the name of Christ, don't have any divisions among you. Now listen, if you view the church biblically, all these divisions cease to become a problem. Answer the question for me, what is the church? Is it these? Is it the institutions? Is it the empires? Is it the structures? Is it Catholicism? Is it Orthodoxy? Is it Protestantism? Is it Presbyterianism, Methodism, Anglicanism? What is it? Well, the church is amongst those, but is not synonymous with those. The church surely is the universal body of people who are born again to life in the Spirit through faith in Christ. It's the people. It's the people who've had an encounter with Jesus. And 1 Peter 2 verse 5 says, You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And we need to get back to this. The church is not a building. The church is not an organization. The church is not a structure. The church is a group of people. Any other structures or bodies are superfluous to the definition of the church. So what are you looking for when you're looking for church? Are you looking for a building? Are you looking for certain sacraments? Are you looking for certain leadership hierarchy? Are you looking for governmental structures or traditions? None of these are the church. None of them. We are the church. And so true unity is when those who are born again, following Jesus, come together, whatever their label, whatever their tradition. And this is true unity. And I want to point you, and I'm almost finished, to Acts 10 and Acts 11. Do you know the first Christians were Jewish? All of them. At the beginning of the church, it was assumed that the special character, the Jewishness of the ceremonies of Judaism and their identity as Jews would continue and be maintained because they were all Jewish. Christianity was a Jewish sect called the Way. You didn't know that, didn't you? You didn't know Jesus was a Jew. He wasn't a prod. He wasn't a Catholic. He was a Jew. And so there was a debate came when Gentiles started coming to faith in Jesus. When they got born again, convention was challenged. This was a new thing. And Peter, in Acts chapter 10, has a vision from the Holy Spirit in a place called Joppa. He's on a housetop, he's hungry, and God just teases him by throwing down a great vision of a great sheet covered in all the animals that are unclean according to the Jewish law. And you can look at it in chapter 10, verse 13 through 15. Three times God says to him, kill and eat. Three times. Kill and eat, kill and eat, kill and eat. Do not call unclean what God has cleansed. And Peter said, not so, Lord. Now those are two things that you can't really say with your head screwed on. Not so, and Lord. He's either Lord, and that means you say yes to what he's saying, or he's not your Lord, and you can say no. 
But to say not so, Lord, is a contradiction, isn't it? But this shows you the complexity we don't appreciate. We think we've got trouble here in Ireland. You want to see what it was like here in in Israel between Jews and Gentiles. And God shows him all the things he was told not to go near, not to touch. And he says, kill it and eat it, because I've cleansed it. And he had a headache over that. And so, you remember Jesus gave Peter the keys to the kingdom to go and open the kingdom to the Gentiles. This is where it happens. He goes to Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10, who was an Italian. He was a Roman officer, centurion in the Roman army. And he was waiting on him because God had sent an angel to Cornelius to say that God was going to come and answer his prayers. And Peter preached the gospel to him, words by which he would be saved And it says the Holy Spirit fell on that whole household. They began to speak with tongues. And listen to what it says in verse 45 through to 47, Acts 10. Those of the circumcision, that's the Jews, who believed, who had already come to faith in Christ, were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who received the Holy Spirit just as we have? They've had the same experience as us. And the Jews couldn't get their head around the circumcision. And then Peter had another dilemma. Because he evidently saw that this was a work of God. These people had believed. But he had to go back to the boys in Jerusalem and explain this all to them. And there were no Gentiles in the church yet. So in Acts chapter 11, he, he explains to them, and this is what we read in verse 17 to 18. If therefore, Peter says, God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I? Remember who's talking here, Peter. Who was I that I should... I could withstand God. He's the king, he's the kingdom, but it's not as if he's locking people out and letting people in, being God. He's not standing up at the gates of heaven deciding who's getting in and out. He says, who was I to withstand God? And when they heard these things, they became silent. This is the Jews in Jerusalem. And they glorified God saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. What are we saying? The litmus test is if they receive the truth of God's word and the work of the Spirit is in and upon them, that's all we need to know, folks. I'm convinced of that. I don't care whether they go to a church or a chapel or a stable or a hut or out in the open air. If they receive the truth and the Spirit's work is in them and on them. Listen, these early Christians who were Jews... And they were hung up with a lot of their Judaism and the exclusivity of it. Listen, even they didn't require these Gentiles to become Jews. The sad fact is, not very long after the first century, the Gentile Christians were requiring Jews to become Gentiles. Which was wrong. We Christians complicate things. Many Christians are very good at warning about adding to the gospel, aren't they? But if listen to me. If we require people to join our group before they're acceptable to us, it's us who's adding to the gospel. 
this is what I believe, and I believe it's biblical, and I believe, and I've been on a journey, but I believe there are born-again, spirit-filled believers in all expressions of Christianity, and true unity is when they come together. I'm not talking about institutions becoming one. I'm talking about believers within them joining together for Christ. I don't care what church you belong to, to just as long as for Calvary you stand. If your sins have been washed in the fountain, you're my brother, so give me your hand. I had a story once about two quarreling sons. It's him. No, it's his fault, the other brother said. And the father said, you're two brothers, but you've only one father, and I'm not here to take sides. I'm here to take over. <laughs> you're two brothers, and you've only one father. God's not here to take sides. He's here to take over. He's the father bringing stability to the family. In Ephesians we read God had a vision of one new man. The middle wall of partition dividing the Jews and the Gentiles was broken down. And society in the kingdom is one person of all different ethnicities, backgrounds, religious baggage and creeds in their past. They come together as one in Jesus Christ. Different political persuasions, all one together in Christ. One new humanity. One new humanity. We define ourselves in a different way. What might that mean for Ireland? If we really got a, a hold of this, of, as a church of Jesus Christ, what could that do for Ireland? What do people see when they look at Ireland? You know what they see. I heard of a man recently who, 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 who um, was in a Muslim part of the world and he was getting a taxi. And the guy was a Christian and he was wanting to witness to the taxi driver. And when he told him he was from Ireland, he said, well, that's where the Christians are killing one another, isn't it? I know that. We all know that's not the whole truth. But is that the perception of those around the world? It's not accurate. What about if the world saw a new thing? What if the world saw a new man, a new body? This Monday past was Martin Luther King Memorial Day in the United States, 17th of January. But on August the 28th, 1963, Martin Luther King stood before the Lincoln Memorial and he gave his most memorable speech. You'll know it. I have a dream that one day the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves, the sons of former slave owners, will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that my four children will one day live in a nation where they will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Well, I have a dream. I have a dream that the church will not be defined by Protestant or Catholic or any other denominational label, but only by Christ Jesus the Lord. I have a dream that we will rise above our petty differences and agree on the centrality of Christ crucified, risen, exalted, and faith in him alone as our only hope of salvation. I have a dream of a church purged, and purified of all defilements, compromise, idolatry, and paganism. A dream of a pure and spotless, chaste bride ready for her bridegroom's return. I have a dream of a church not besmirched by the political spirit of the world. 
a church free to love all mankind, a church that is salt and light in the earth. I have a dream of a church that moves in kingdom power and authority, doing miracles, signs and wonders, to the glory of God alone. I have a dream of a church which does not build an empire for its own name, but extends the kingdom of God and his Christ. I have a dream of a church who cares not about reputation or popular acclaim, but who performs for the approval of an audience of one, Jesus Christ. I have a dream of a church known for its love as well as its truth. A church who loves not their lives unto death, but lays down their lives for others. I have a dream of such a church in Ireland and that such an Ireland will become again a land of true saints, known for her faith rather than fear, known for light rather than darkness, love rather than hate, forgiveness rather than war. And though that's my dream, I believe it's God's dream. Because God had a dream in Ephesians 1 and verse 10, he said, God purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and in earth under Christ. Unity. God's dream is unity of every man, woman, boy or girl on the Isle of Ireland under Christ. We are meant to be living in it. Are we living God's dream? Let's pray. I'm going to read a scripture to you and then I'm going to hand over to Mitch. I don't know how to end tonight. But we're going to, in the attitude of prayer, I'm going to read a passage of scripture to you. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to rest upon you as I read it. It's Ephesians 4. Just let me read it. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Father, this message has weighed heavy on me. This is a message that I have paid the price for in ways and maybe we'll pay again. 
Lord, this is a message that threatens strongholds in the religious enclaves of man-made systems. But I believe that this is the message that could turn Ireland upside down for Jesus Christ. That there is a kingdom that transcends man's labels and boundaries and lines. So Lord, we pray you will take the truth of the one church, the one body. The truth of what Jesus died for and rose again and what the Holy Spirit was sent down to birth and what he came to indwell as a building of God where there is neither any more Jew, Greek, bond, free, male, female, but we are all one in Christ. And may the labels fall and Christ rise over all. And may we move out to him from all, from all our structures, from all our systems. And Lord, we just bless. We're not cursing denominations. We're not cursing groups or movements. But we're asking, Lord, that the pure bride, the spotless bride will come forth from every corner and unite for Christ and his kingdom. And forgive us, forgive me, Lord, for years I've preached against this stuff. Oh God, for years I said that there could never be a I believed there could never be a true Christian in the Roman Catholic system. I believed that. And I repent of that. I repent of it. I repent of looking down my nose at other people who are different than me. And Lord, forgive us for when we have judged rather than loved, for when we have condemned rather than helped, for when we have shamed and shouted rather than liberated, encouraged and blessed. Lord, this is a hard line to walk in the sense of being true to the truth of the gospel and yet doing all that is within our power to live peaceably with all men and women. Give us the grace to know how to do this. That we might see a change. For God, you know my heart tonight. I believe that this is part of the revival that we need. In Ireland Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, 